Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey, folks. How should we as Christians engage the state? Should we get more Christians elected office or should we opt out? This topic was the very motivation that brought the Bad Roman Project about. Today, Abby and I welcome Peter Rollo to the show to talk more about this topic. Who is Peter Rollo? Have you heard of rival nations? If not, you need to know who they are. Abby, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. It's Sunday afternoon, Memphis, Tennessee. It's hot outside as normal. It's getting hotter and hotter outside in Memphis. <laughs> so I know whenever I, I message you and ask you if you're familiar with Rival Nations, you said, Yeah, I love all the stuff they put out. And then I was like, Well, guess what? We got him, we convinced him to come on the show. So this has been a fun, this has been pretty exciting for us to get to do this or even get to think about doing this. Yeah, for sure. So, Peter, before we get into talking about Rival Nations, why don't you just give us a little background of yourself? Whatever you want us to know, you, you can tell us whatever you want us to know, and then we'll start talking about Rival Nations a little bit. First of all, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful day here in Michigan. We finally have some good weather, so I've been enjoying that most of the day. But yeah, a little bit about myself. I uh, I grew up in the church, uh, in a Christian home, going to charismatic evangelical church. My faith kind of stayed uh, lukewarm for the majority of my life until I started to really ask some serious questions of myself that I hadn't really challenged myself with before. And that led me to realize that I didn't really have a lot of answers for things that I thought I did. And uh, that led me to go down some theological pathways that led to realizing that I don't think I agree with most of what mainstream American Christianity believes. (laughs) So uh, being uh, somebody that has found himself working in ministry at uh, several churches throughout my life, I've been in an uncomfortable spot where I I try to make a difference where I'm at, but a lot of my uh, thoughts and views and ideas are pretty controversial uh, to mainstream Christianity. So I've been navigating that for the past uh, probably five to seven years. Is that why you chose to stay anonymous for so long as Rival Nations? Because you were kind of like a public ministry figure? Yeah, to be honest, uh, in the beginning when I first started developing some viewpoints that not everyone uh, uh, finds comfortable, um, I found myself uh, being very vocal about it at first, and I didn't realize uh, some of the people that I would be pushing away by doing that and some of the relationships I would end up straining. And I realized uh, pretty soon that some of the approaches that I was taking wasn't beneficial to my strategy or even uh, my employment. So I had to make some changes and kind of back off and maybe try to develop some things without directly interfering with uh, some of my employment or personal relationships. I think I've figured that out 
over the years and I'm, I'm coming to a place where I'm able to uh, have a lot more maturity in, in how I, how I present my views. Well, I need to keep that in the back of my head because I'm not good at that at all. (laughs) Because ever since I've uh, been, we started this, I've still remained pretty vocal about it, but I'm always, always been in the type of a person that's like, I'm a social butterfly by nature. And so I'm willing to, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to engage folks and talk to folks, but sometimes it, these, these, like, I think you noticed it and I, I, I notice it. I just don't know how to go about it that I just, I don't know how to engage them without sounding. I don't mean to come across as rude or crass, but I'm very matter of fact about things. And you're right. You, it, it has pushed people away. It has pushed people away in my life. I mean, I've, I've lost close friends because, but, but once I've learned some stuff and I know it to be the truth, it's hard for me to just back off of it and not be vocal about it because I see so much wrong going on in the church and it's especially with this, with this topic, you know, and how, how we're supposed to engage the state. And I know Abby gets on to me several, she's gotten on to me several times about the way I approach folks with it. And I just don't listen to her very often. That's, <laughs> that's my fault. But yeah, so in, in family and friends, I've been, you know, they think I'm crazy, but I've had some cool conversations with folks too, man, because when they start, when they start trying to understand what we're talking about, it's like, well, it really makes sense what you're saying, Yeah. but they've never heard it before. They haven't heard the stuff we're talking about, you know, when it comes to this, just this topic alone, just how we are to engage the state as a Christian. Yep. We've been asked before, what are y'all doing? We're, so we're basically just turning people's worldview upside down right now. And it's confusing to a lot of folks. It's confusing to a lot of folks because they're not being taught this in church. I mean, I, you spent time in evangelical churches. I spent the majority of my time in Southern Baptist churches and stuff. And I never heard any of this stuff like you read in the, with the early church writings. They don't talk about this behind the pulpit. I don't know if they're scared to lose membership in their church. I don't know what it is about it that that they won't speak this truth that we know to be true. I mean, in this article we're going to get to here in a little while, and I don't want to jump into the article right now. I still want to talk about rival nations. But what is your favorite verse to go to when it comes to how the state or how a Christian engages the state? And it's always the one of the temptation of Christ. You could just go right back to that one hmm. and start there. And then you see how the early church has kind of followed suit prior to Constantine. And we'll get into that in a little bit too, but yeah, I have a question. What, where were you at politically or what kind of made you start your, your mind shifting on this? Cause I know what happened with me and I'm sure Abby's got her own story. I know Abby's got her own story, but what, what happened to you or what, what that made you realize, all right, Hey, something's wrong here. And we're not talking about this enough. Where were you at in your life with that? My whole life, I've been pretty apolitical, not really getting too involved in politics. So I don't have a story where I was some right-wing zealot, and then I saw the light, and then I became this or that. Uh, if anything, um, I think that the the switch that flipped in my head was more along the lines of realizing that there is no ideology or political party in America or otherwise that aligns with the politics of Jesus. I think my tendency before learning that would probably have been to align more liberally, but I think that tends to be almost a trap that uh, people with viewpoints like mine or even, uh, even libertarians uh, tend to align more with liberal political ideologies where I think that that's actually just another trap, just like I think right-wing politics are. 
I think the biggest thing for me was learning that uh, Jesus was political and that pretty much everything that he was doing and saying had some political implication. And because of that, he's offering an alternative to the ways of the world. And any, any political party that could be invented is always looking to further the means of a earthly government and nation. So it's, it's never going to align with the way of Jesus. So, and, and Abby asked you this too, is that what made you uh, want to come out as not be anonymous anymore? So instead of being more vocal about it, like, you know, face to face, is that what started rival nations for you to kind of, all right, I can just kind of step back, write this stuff out. Cause the website's fantastic. The, your articles are fantastic. And I don't know if it's just you that, that do all the writing or you have some help with it as well, but um, is that what the motivation was to kind of pull back? All right, I can be anonymous with this and still get this out because it's driving me crazy and I need to talk about it. So this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to write articles and put it on a website. Yeah, the website really originated as just a tool for myself. So I would end up having lots of conversations with uh, different people, friends, family, uh, people at church. And a lot of these topics that I was studying are can sometimes be pretty complex and it's hard to remember all of the verses and the different uh, quotes from different authors and all that kind of stuff. And so I said to myself, well, I, as I'm studying, as I'm reading books and listening to different teachers or theologians, I'm like, I need to compile these things that I'm learning and, and maybe hopefully figure out what I actually believe. And so the website started as a way just for me to start writing and recording those things down. So when I was, when I would have a conversation with somebody, I could be like, well, we only have like five minutes to get into this, but if you want to know more about what I believe on this topic or that topic, I wrote something down and here's the web address essentially. And in the beginning I had no concern whatsoever with trying to, you know, have somebody I didn't know read the website, but it, it turned out to be kind of an interesting and enjoyable project for me. And so I just kind of started putting it out there. I made like a Facebook page and all that kind of stuff, which I think kind of helped people to share it with other people. And it, I don't know, it's been a few years now and some people seem to enjoy it. So I think your stuff always looks really great. Like there's really like a picture that works well and looks beautiful and striking. And then the article titles are always kind of like attention grabbing, controversial kind of things where um, a lot of them can even work just as memes. Like I, I'm sure a lot of the time people don't even read the articles, but it even just as a meme to get people thinking, but then it's like, and there's more, there's always an article that is like so well thought out. You're not just like drive-by dropping your opinion. You've like obviously really researched everything hmm. and have all these links to back it up and have book recommendations at the beginning. So yeah, I love what you put out all the time. And I you can tell that there has been a lot of thought behind it and a lot of things that you spent a long time wrestling through. Yeah, thank you. Do you feel like with this new kind of political realization of Jesus that you had that was developing at that time. Do you feel like that also changed your theology or they kind of went together? Oh yeah. It completely transformed my theology. I think realizing uh, the political implications of all the different um, 
things that Jesus was saying, words that he used, just even the word gospel, uh, learning that that word was not something that was a uh, like a Hebrew word or a religious word or anything like that, discovering that even just that word was a word that Caesar was already using to spread his propaganda, to spread a word of his victories and all that kind of stuff. And that Jesus co-opted a word like that among many others. It totally transformed the way I, I view everything about Jesus' mission and about what the Bible is trying to do, I think. I like going and reading your articles and how you can it's almost like it can lead you down a rabbit hole to other articles because you link you link your articles, your other articles in these articles. And I was doing that a while ago. I was reading your article again that we're going to talk about here in a minute. And I was like, oh, wait, I wonder what this article says about this topic. You know, and so I kept clicking yeah. and it sent me down this, you know, the writings of the early church. And that's something that I love reading is, is the early church writings because it's it really we have the Bible and then you get the first three or 400 years prior to Constantine and the stuff that was being written down by these guys and nobody talks about it. It's so amazing because these writings are beautiful and these writings have so much power behind them. Maybe not the same authority as the Bible, but it's these folks understood it. Some of them were taught directly by the apostles, you know, yeah. and if you can go take their words seriously, why not read it? There was, they argued a lot about different things, you know, but the one thing they were, they were pretty solid on was no King, but Christ, you know, we follow Jesus Christ, not Caesar. Yeah. And there was other things that they didn't, they disagreed on and that's fine. And we still do that today, but that one topic was so universal among them. And it's not today. It's not today in the church. The church is not, it's not a universal thought. It's not even talked about hardly in the church. And if it is talked about in the church, you looked at like, you're telling them some kind of lie that's not, you know what I mean? But it's all right there in the Bible too. Yeah. And it's so strange that we've gotten so far away from that. Yeah. I would say that the, uh, the modern church shares much more legacy with the Roman Catholic church than it does with the early church or the church that we see recorded in the new Testament. And I think, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. That's, that's the main issue. Most pastors are looking towards the theology of the reformers from the 15th, 16th century. They're not looking at the early church, people who had contact, direct contact with those who walked with Jesus or even Jesus himself. And I think that was probably one of the major pitfalls of the mainstream reformers is that they didn't look back far enough. They were only concerned with breaking off from the Catholic church, but they weren't concerned as, as much with looking at historic Christianity and how, how Christians operated before they were part of the Roman Catholic Church. And I think the Anabaptists did a better job, but I think we still have a new Reformation to go through today in order to get where, to where God wants us to go. Uh, but I think we're kind of seeing it a little bit, you know, just just with rival nations with the Bad Roman Project and, you know, anarcho-Christian, you know, we have small platforms. But the more people that are talking about it, the more people are starting to pay attention to it. And especially if you can get a Christian to sit there and just listen to you for a second. Like you you handle it way better than I do. Abby handles it way better than I do. But if I can get them to kind of just get a conversation started, and it's, it doesn't always go well. But sometimes it, it, you're, it gets them thinking. Yeah. And if we can just get people thinking, I think we can see that reformation. I'm hoping, maybe not in our lifetime, but eventually it's going to happen. It's gonna, it has to happen. Hey, folks. Craig here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website 
and Facebook page, and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in-depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. So, I mean, we can just start at the very beginning. This article is titled, Christians Can't Be in Government. And it's a strong statement. It's like Abby said a while ago, you can see, you just see the topic of an article and it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to catch your eye and it can seem kind of, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's a bold statement. I mean, it's a pretty bold statement because we don't talk about it, but it's true. If, if we're going to take it serious, we're going to be serious about this. It's, we're not supposed to engage the state that way. You know, and it's one of the one of the many things and you talk about it right at the beginning of the article. Every four years in America, you'll find at least one presidential candidate running on a platform that includes some sort of Christian values. If the term Christian actually means what it means, being like Jesus Christ, then no president in the history of America was ever a Christian. A bold claim. I want to start there because. The Christians that are involved with the state or want more Christians in office, when you say something like that to them, they're going to think you're nuts because they think that Christians can fix this. Are they actual Christians? You know, when I my first got involved with politics or being included with George Bush, George W. Bush, you know, that guy spent every Sunday in church, called himself a Christian. He called he said Jesus, his hero or something, basically who he looked to the most to make his decisions. But if you look at how what happened after George Bush became president? We've been at war for over 20 years now. Is that something that is Christ-like? I mean, come on. Is he really a Christian? I think if uh, if somebody who calls themselves a Christian actually uh, totally focuses their life, thoughts, actions uh, on the way of Jesus and imitating him by example, then there's no possible way that somebody like that can be running a secular pagan government that has any power because you, the only way that you can maintain power is through violence. It's the only way that you can control anything is through the threat of violence through coercion. So even that simple fact alone separates you from the way of Jesus. But when it comes to, making decisions for an entire nation and how it interacts with other nations, then you have the problem of, well, are you going to treat those other nations like other people, like your neighbor or your enemy? Because Jesus has a lot to say about how to treat both of those types of people. And I think the answer is obviously no, you can't. I mean, any, any rich and powerful nation does not love their enemies like Jesus commands. They can't, they can't and still survive. It's just impossible. So you just put yourself in an impossible situation. If you are a Christian and you want to be in government, you're, you're automatically not following Jesus anymore. I like how you pointed out in the article, like I'm skipping ahead to the kind of the middle of the article, but when you talk about how um, Satan tempted Jesus with political power and you talk about, he did that because Satan wanted Jesus to have political power. So when Christians say, oh, we just need more Christians in government. That's exactly what Satan is saying. That's his goal too, because there's the power that you get through violence and there's the power that you get through love, which is what God wants for us and what Jesus' example was. And I think if Christians are getting caught up in that power that you get through violence, 
um, which can happen definitely when they get involved in politics, but other power structures too. That's how you lose your real power mm. of through love and the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Satan wants. Yeah, exactly. That's 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 great, Abby, because it's true. I and mean, if you if you look at it that way, it, and I don't really think I've ever really thought about it that way either until you just said that. But yeah, that is exactly what Satan was wanting. He wants more Christians in office because it takes you away from following Jesus Christ. This is one of my favorite pushbacks uh, when I'm speak, talking to Christians about this that are still not understanding what we're talking about. How do you handle this question or this statement? God created government. That's why we need more Christians in office, because God created this government. I, and I always push back, no, we didn't. This is man-made stuff. You know, and it was right there in First Samuel 8. We always talk about it. And there's, I think there's a passage in Tim- Timothy where Paul's talking about human institutions. He's talking about government. And when you share this, you show this stuff to them, they're like, yeah, but he said he's going to have the government on his shoulders. What government? Yeah. I think I don't think that's too tough of a question, to be honest. But. Not for you, not for you, but <laughs> it's 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 a it's a question that I get all the time when I'm when I'm talking to these folks. And like I said, sometimes I don't know how to answer it without without just showing these scriptures. Like, well, what about this one then? Because there's a contradiction going on here. If you really believe that, yeah, there's a contradiction. The Bible contradicts the statement you just made. Yeah, when uh, when God created mankind. Uh, in the story in Genesis, you know, he created Adam and Eve and uh, he appointed authority for them, but their authority wasn't over other people. It was over the animals and the uh, plant life and, you know, all of that. There, it wasn't over other people. So we see uh, that the first major issue that God takes with humanity after that is uh, the story of the flood and the main sin that is highlighted in that story for why God is uh, upset with mankind is is the violence that they're doing to each other. And violence always comes from uh, wanting to control other people. Wanting to control other people requires violence whenever that control is met with resistance. So I think there's that. But then God set Israel aside as his portion to basically be a witness and example to the world. And so how he functioned with his nation as king over his people, I think is is the example that God was trying to set to the world. They didn't have a king. And like you mentioned, 1 Samuel 8. The reason for that is because, like I said before, God didn't want people ruling over other people. And so Israel was to be an example. Now, they lost uh, much of their their salt, their witness, when they opted to have kings like all the other nations. But that didn't change God's attitude and view towards people ruling over other people. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's why God came in the flesh as Jesus, because God is the only one that has the right to rule over us. We don't have the right to rule over anybody else. And I think that point is missed so much with with Christians these days, too. When you, when you go to the ballot box to vote for some your favorite guy, your favorite gal, you're essentially putting that person in power to rule over your neighbor. And that is not something that Jesus ever instructed us to do. It's the exact opposite of what he said when he said, love your neighbor, even your enemy. Yep. Because when you look at how these folks fight back and forth with each other in, in politics, you got the left, the right, now libertarians, you know, all this stuff, they're all fighting with each other. 
they're ignoring the fact that you can't rule, just like you said, you can't rule over a human being. This stuff, the political process makes people so nasty towards each other. And this is, this is Christians. You got Christians on the left, you got Christians on the right fighting with each other. Why? If you, if you understood that, y'all are calling each other enemies. I mean, some of the arguments are so nasty, man. And I, listen, I used to be a part of it. I used to do that, but I didn't realize how nasty I was being. I thought, if we got enough Christians in office, then we're going to set the liberals straight. Hmm. And we're going to fix all this. you know. And that was my attitude. And it's the same attitude I see. But when you step back and look at it, wait a second. This isn't what Jesus wants us to do. Jesus wants us to love our neighbor, love our enemy. Even that guy on the left or that guy on the right that you're fighting with, who you think is your enemy, Jesus said, love them. And putting your favorite guy to rule over them is not what Jesus wanted us to do. Yeah. Sorry, I go on rants. <laughs> go ahead, Abby. <laughs> um, yeah, you mentioned another thing in the article. Uh, the problem is not who sits on the throne. The problem is that there is a throne. Because hmm. I think another idea people can get into, besides that if we had more Christians in government, they'll... I've also heard like, oh, Jesus for president, or I wish we could just vote for Jesus. (laughs) But it's like, just like with the story with Satan tempting Jesus, even the most perfect person who ever existed having political power was still not a good thing because that type of power requires that you worship Satan, essentially. Hmm. And so it's not just good enough that we shove more Jesus into our political system or whatever kind of power structure we have, even within the church, the whole power structure has to be turned upside down to be this servant kingdom that Jesus was trying to tell us about. Yeah, We can't even have the the same structure, no matter who is in it, even Jesus. We can call him king or we can say he rules over us, but it like in completely the opposite way that we think of that in like human terms, right? I think ex- what you said is exactly true. It's the the whole system is incorrect. The system of government of power over other people is what politics, human politics are and what human government are, what our nations are. They're all held together by power over other people enforced by violence. That concept, that system is incompatible with the way of Christ. So Jesus for president doesn't make any sense. It would be completely undone because Jesus would abolish everything, everything in the the way in that we rule over other people that would just not be occurring. So Jesus can't be president because he does not come to be served, but to serve. And so the whole system is just completely incompatible. And I think that's why a Christian can't be in government because Jesus wouldn't be in government. So why would somebody who's trying to follow Jesus do something that he wouldn't do or that he couldn't do would be incompatible? Is there how many how many uh, times in the Bible is there three times that Jesus was t- tempted with political power or, or not tempted so much by Satan? But when even like because I'm reading the article here, whenever he fed the five thousand and they wanted him, you know, be king and make no mistake, he was eventually be crowned king. But he he fled away from that. So if they're wanting to be their king or president of the United States, he would flee from that with that from that understanding at the time. Is there three times in the Bible? Am I thinking about that right, or is there more than that? Um, it, it may be around that. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. It, it, there's lots of times where uh, 
Jesus didn't even want to be associated with the term Messiah because it, it was a term that, that they already had a preconceived notion of what that meant. Jewish messiahs at the time, uh, there were several that came before Jesus and uh, came after Jesus, but they all used violence to further their means. So any talk of Messiah, which just means anointed one, which would be another name for a king, Jesus didn't want to be associated with that. And he, he actually asked his disciples not to tell people that he was the Messiah, which, you know, in a sense is, is a royal figure. It, it was definitely a theme all throughout his ministry that people were trying to make him king or expecting him to be king or at least some kind of political ruler who was going to overthrow Rome. That's what the Messiah meant to them. And so I think we tend to gloss over a lot of it, but if you look, it's there all the time where he's trying to correct that kind of preconceived notion of, no, that's not who I <laughs> who I am. I'm doing something different. And it's funny because I think another thing that's prevalent in the current church, and I think it's, so much of it is connected, but is like this end times theology that Jesus is going to come back and, and then he's going to be the violent ruler who's going to slaughter all our enemies and stuff like that, which I think it's like we're repeating the mistake again of why people didn't recognize what Jesus was doing in the first place. Yeah. Well, was it who was it? Jason Porterfield that mentioned to us. We talked about that a little bit, and he said he certainly didn't leave that way. Why would he come back that way? Yeah. <laughs> like he changed his mind whenever he left. That he's like, I'm going to come back and start slaughtering people. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but you know, I used to have that mentality too. Like, well, it's okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to see my enemies taken care of when Jesus comes back. I had a I had a pastor at a Southern Baptist church. He he would get by in there and go, "We're gonna come back from heaven, follow him on our horses, and we're gonna be slaying the enemies with with Jesus." Yikes! And I was like, "Yes, <laughs> we're gonna finally get to take care of these folks that have been so hateful to me." But then I'm, I didn't realize I was being hateful back. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's in our fallen nature to want to to enact vengeance on people who we are afraid of or who we think has have done us wrong. So it's our propensity for violence that draws us towards passages in the Bible that we can interpret in that way, whether it be uh, depictions of uh, God or uh, Israel in the Old Testament or certain interpretive readings of Revelation. You know, it's it's easy for us to look past the teachings of Jesus that seem to indicate that there's an uh, you can't be violent and you can't seek vengeance and you have to love your enemies. Those can take a backseat to the other passages that could possibly be interpreted to mean that you you can be violent and you can kill your enemy. So I think I think that's what that is. And it's hard it's hard to wrestle people free from that, especially in America, because our entire culture is built around the the myth of the American cowboy and our militarism that, <laughs> you know, just means that might makes right. It's not an easy task to for even Christians to to understand the teachings of Jesus in that way. Jumping back a little bit when we were talking about the uh, the different spots uh, in the Bible where they were they were trying to crown Jesus as king then and he, he fled from it and you you said Christ's own disciples shared this misunderstanding. When James and John asked Jesus who among them would have the most political power in his kingdom, he rebuked them. And he said Jesus called them together and said, "You know that the rulers of Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
that's and we need to stop right there. That that part when he said not so with you, and he's talking to us too. I mean, he's talking to Christians as well. That it's not going to be the same for you. They're going to do that. We already know they're going to do that. Details, but it's not going to be the same with you. Yeah. And we need to take that. Just that one, not so with you. That one statement right there. Seriously, in my opinion, we need to take that more seriously than we do these days because we are supposed to be set apart and, 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 rec- and looked at differently among these folks. And we should not be engaging with that stuff because it makes us look like them. And how are they going to know? We talk about this all the time on the show, live a life that gets people asking you questions. And if you're just involved with the same garbage that everybody else is with this, they're not going to be, you're just going to be going along with them. And they're not going to know any different that you're a Christian. You can call yourself a Christian, but if you're signing up to, uh, to run for political office, or if you're signing up to vote for somebody to rule over your neighbor, or your enemy, that's not Christ-like. Let's be let's be blunt about it because it's not Christ-like whatsoever. Hey, folks, Greg here again. As you know, this project is completely self-funded by me, and all profits go straight to charities here in Memphis. If you have a blog, a podcast, or a product that you would like to advertise on the Bad Roman Podcast, visit thebadroman.com/ads. I'm so happy how this project has grown, and thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the conversation. Okay, the, the portion of the article where it says opt out. And when I read this, it's like, I love that, because it's something that, it's a, it's a phrase that I've been using a lot lately. Without Even before I read this article, I've opted out. We need to opt out of that, that political system and just get back to following the teachings of Jesus Christ. I want to talk about this for a little bit. It says, according to Scripture, America is not your nation. Christ's nation is. According to Scripture, you are a foreigner in America. Your citizenship isn't in America. It's in God's kingdom. I shared this article in our discussion group saying we're going to be interviewing rival nations. We're really excited about this. And I shared the article and somebody read it. She's a, she lives in Australia and she's looking forward to hearing this. But she said, she doesn't understand this because didn't Paul use his Roman citizenship quite a bit? Did he mention, I just said, well, he used that quite a bit to stay alive. He mentioned that quite a bit to stay out, you know, because he was being locked up quite a bit too. So maybe let, let's, let's hit on that because she brought that question up in the discussion group. And I thought I'd like to talk about that. So maybe you can answer that question for her. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that Paul uh, definitely used his Roman citizenship to leverage uh, certain situations. So he had a mission in the heart of the empire, and it was a difficult one. He went to jail several times for things that he was saying and doing. In order to further the gospel, I think he leveraged that citizenship. Now, so I live in uh, Michigan, which is a state in the United States of America. I have a social security card. And I have a birth certificate that says I was born here. I am a citizen. So there is an aspect of reality where uh, basically because I was born in a certain place, in a certain land, the government that exercises control over my life has determined that I am one of their citizens. I, I didn't have any say in it. The one nation that I have had a say in whether or not I am a citizen is the kingdom of God. So when I decided to live for Jesus and accept Jesus as king of my life, I entered into citizenship in his nation. So I think that Paul viewed things similarly where he physically had a citizenship in Rome, but it's not something that 
embodied his identity. He, he had completely forsaken even his a stronger identity that he formerly had, which was as a Pharisee in his religious order. So there was, there was nothing that was important for him aside from his citizenship in Christ's kingdom. And if, if the gospel is the kingdom, then what Paul talked about more than anything was a rival nation to Rome. So we have to remember Paul wasn't executed because he told people where to go, uh, how to get to heaven when they die. He was executed as a, as a treasonous political enemy. And so whatever we, whatever we think about Paul's citizenship to Rome, it really was nothing more than a legal technicality that he could capitalize on, but not use for any gain in terms of politics or uh, controlling other people or anything like that. His primary identity was in uh, Jesus and his nation. I think it's similar to the argument that people give when they're like, well, if you're so against the government, why do you drive on the roads and whatever? And it's like, it's like we might as well be kidnapped. And just because I like eat food the kidnappers give me doesn't mean I'm consenting to them having that power over me. And so it's like Paul was doing what he could to get out of whatever legal predicament he was in. It shouldn't be taken as a consent of being that citizenship, but rather he he's in a kind of foreign hostile territory and is going to use whatever means he has to be able to keep on his mission. So anyone who has any power in human government has it because it has been given to them by Satan. It's pretty bold, man, because I, I, I like the no holds barred uh, approach that you take with your, with your writings and, and the, and the website, because to me, I think we need more of it. I think we need to be more, so outspoken about this and we need to not, maybe not beat people over the head with it, write an article, let people let people send rival nations articles to folks, let them read it and figure it out for themselves, you know, but I think making statements like that is bold and I think it's needed. And I appreciate, appreciate the way you approach that. But I want to talk about that a little bit because that's another thing going back to what we were talking about earlier with the only reason there's a president is because God put him in that position. And they always fall back on Romans 13. And I, always, I can always see this see this argument coming because it, when you're talking to somebody new about it, but because it, it's always the go to that they read those first seven verses of Romans 13 without reading in Romans 12 or reading beyond the first seven verses of Romans 13 or the first seven verses of Romans 13. But I can see it. I mean, you can see it going on in their head. Well, I'm fixing to get him with Romans 13. He hasn't thought about this yet. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> trust me. Well, we've heard this from quite a bit. So how do you respond to somebody like that, that God put those folks in office for his power, not Satan? Well, I think that one verse in uh, Romans written by Paul is not something that can overturn the entire uh, story of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see that the nations are run by demonic forces uh, and that the only nation that isn't is Israel. And that's why in the 10 commandments, it says, don't serve any other gods. That means there are other gods and those gods were appointed to other nations. Aside from that, you know, like we talked about earlier, 
the three uh, temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, the final and third and ultimate temptation, I would say, that Jesus faced was to obtain political power, to basically be the ruler of all the earthly nations. And that authority, according to Jesus, because I'm assuming that Jesus told this story to those who would eventually uh, tell the story and have it written down. Uh, so according to Jesus, Satan holds authority over all nations on the earth, and he gives it to whomever he pleases. And according to Jesus, the way in which someone can be given that authority from Satan is to worship Satan. That is completely shocking. I, that's shocking to me. But if we take it seriously and we really sit with that for long enough, why would it be any different for anybody else? Is Satan only interested in Jesus worshiping him? Or is he also interested in everyone worshiping him? If that was a temptation that Jesus resisted, why would we put ourselves in a position to be tempted as well? And then also, if we know that's a temptation, why would we partake in it? So to get back to Romans 13, I have an article about this on the website that goes much more in depth. But in a nutshell, Paul, I don't think, is even claiming that that God is appointing people. Uh, the The Greek word that that Paul uses is tasso, which means to to arrange in an orderly manner. And so the way I interpret it and the way also many other theologians interpret it is that that God is is arranging things with the pieces that he has. And so God's not going to override our free will. God's not going to uh, do things uh, that overpower our will when in terms of the things that we're doing. I think the best example is, does Romans 13 work for Nazi Germany? And if it doesn't work for you with Nazi Germany, then it doesn't work in the way that you think it works for America. Right. And then that's where they kind of just stop. They stop with America because that's what I always come back with. I was like, so are you saying the same thing about the Taliban? Are you saying the same thing about North Korea, about Iran? You know, these folks that are supposedly our enemies? Or are you just stopping with America? And that's it's kind of that's kind of shocking to them too, because I don't think they ever consider that. They just stop with the United States president. Yeah. And that's it. You gotta you gotta involve all these nations too, if that's your case. And usually only the president that they like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then, then they'll follow up with what are you, are you praying for Joe Biden? <laughs> Not on purpose. I mean, I don't go out of my way to pray for Joe Biden. I know we're supposed to probably, but I it's not a point of my prayers most of the time is to pray for Joe Biden. I, I hope he does better as president because I don't, I don't see them, any, of, any of them any different at this point. But I like what you said about using the Greek language that Paul used in, in Romans 13. And it's always something else in Romans 13 that they read it and they read that, that word submit, but they use that word as obey. And they don't see that there's two different definitions in submit, submission and obe obedience. And it, it's very different if you read the Greek definition of submit versus the, the Greek definition of obey. Because they, when they when they send you that verse, they're like, we're supposed to obey government. I said, it doesn't say that. Yeah, It says we're supposed to submit. Well, it's the same thing. No, it's not. It's two entirely different words. And Paul could have used so many different, uh, could have used so many different words, but he used submit on purpose. That, no, you're exactly right. Um, Paul could have used that word, but he didn't. Oh, one more question. Are you the only one that's doing the writing on the website or do you have help doing it? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, 
while I was anonymous, I decided to open up the website to uh, submissions for other people to write, and I would edit them. I I en- only ended up getting like two or three, and over the course of time that I had that open, and when I decided to stop being anonymous and put my name on it, I realized I had over a hundred articles that I had written and only a couple that somebody else had. So I just let them know that I was going to take those articles off the website. So anything that's on the website, probably likely anything that you've read is something that I've written. Uh, there might be still one article on there, but at the bottom I do say that it was co-written, but that's, that's where all of our articles come from. When we first started was, you know, folks that were working with the project. Now we've got, we've opened it up to let, you know, ask folks to come in and write for us. And we, it took off for a while. It's kind of slowed down a little bit, but I think, you know, people just get busy, but we're getting some more coming in lately. So we we welcome it because I love the different perspectives and go check out rival nations because they're going to, they're going to blow your mind. If you think the bad Roman is saying some uh, controversial <laughs> things, go read Rival Nation stuff. Because <laughs> I also just wanted to talk about, you talk a lot about uh, how God is in the process of restoring all things and about speaking out against ec- eternal conscious torment. And I really appreciate that too, because I feel like there's a lot of Christian anarchists out there. There's not as many who I also align with theologically in in that way. So do you feel like those things connect? That's kind of what I was getting at in my question way back in the beginning of having this political realization about Jesus change your thinking about God and all violence and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I would have to say that my theological journey is definitely not limited to aspects of Christian anarchism. A lot of it, you know, lots of different topics, one of which is, uh, you know, eschatology and times theology. And I grew up in a church that taught the rapture and the seven-year tribulation and all that kind of stuff. I have since come to uh, believe that those are, that's not exactly what the Bible teaches, but I think rather the Bible teaches that Jesus is now king and he is victorious over his enemies. And there are implications of that. And one of the major implications of that is that uh, the world is going to get better. And statistically and historically, it has. So for the last 2000 years, we're looking on on the macro level that things have gotten better in almost every measurable way. I think I think it's possible that 2,000 years is maybe even just a short amount of time since the time of Jesus. I'm not sure how long things are going to go, but I think we have a long road ahead of us. But it's definitely my understanding today that Jesus is victorious. He's going to get his way. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And part of that means that the kingdom is going to grow and that his will is going to permeate the earth. And that means less violence and less empire and less evil. I like that a lot because it's like Abby said, it's something that we, and it's when, when I first got involved with these circles, I was still under the impression that eternal conscious torment was a thing. That's what I was taught. I had never heard of annihilationism, universalism, never heard of these things. And you hear about it some when you get all these different anarchists together and they're talking about these different things. I'm like, what just happened? What did I just walk into? You mean the rapture's not real? I mean, what's going on here? Yeah. And so, but then when the longer this project's gone, I become a pacifist now. Sure. Yeah. When I started trying to understand the nonviolent side of it, that means that I don't think that he's going to torment people for eternity. 
that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't line up with uh, pacifism. And if te- if Jesus was teaching pacifism, <laughs> why, why somebody's like, well, he can do whatever he wants. I said, so you're just telling me he's a liar. He wants us to be a pacifist, but he's not going to do it himself. That doesn't make sense to me. Come on. Where are we at with this? But yeah, I, I love that conversation. We could probably talk an hour about that. Maybe we'll just get you back on and we'll talk about yeah, yeah, sounds all good. that for an hour because I'm sure you've got plenty of writings on that. But go ahead and tell us where, where everybody can find uh, Rival Nations at and I'll let you go. I mean, the easiest way is to go to rivalnations.org. The site is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but it's mostly just to get people to the website because that's where the content is. Right on, man. Sounds great. Abby, thanks again. Once again, thanks for coming on and and helping me out with this. You always bring a perspective that keeps Craig in line, and I appreciate that. It's one of my main reasons for asking her to help me out with this is because she can keep me in line for the most part. Well, thanks. I'm super super excited that we got to talk. The rival nations guy who we now know as Peter. (laughs) He is no longer anonymous. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to y'all soon. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about the Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.